0: Well, good morning. Welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is Matthew. One of the one of the pastors here. If you're joining us today, we're just grateful that God's brought you here. Uh, I've got some. T- this last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, the first the beginning of Lent, and that last week I handed out some resources. I've got uh, a few more of these devotionals here, I think seven or so. So if this would be helpful to you during the Lent season by way of devotional, you're welcome to one of these. You can raise your hand, and Brandon will hand one to you. You just got voluntold. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, One of my favorite weekend newspapers to read is the the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal. And that's because every weekend, uh, Peggy Noonan writes a scathing political expose on something. Um, Peggy Noonan was a speech writer, and she was a biographer of Ronald Reagan, so anything good that Reagan said, Peggy Noonan came up with first. But she says uh, in his biography, she says this she says, in a president, character is everything. A president doesn 't have to be brilliant. Harry Truman wasn 't brilliant, she says, and he helped save Western Europe from Stalin. A president doesn 't have to be clever; you can hire clever. White Houses are always full of quick-witted people with ready advice on how to flip a senator or implement a strategy. You can hire pragmatic, and you can buy and bring in policy wonks, but you can't buy courage, decency, and character. You can't rent a strong moral sense. A president must bring those things with him. And we would say the same thing about... The eldership in the local church about pastors, that character must always trump giftedness. One of the reasons that we've seen such uh, devastating and nasty and painful churches fail, particularly in the Pacific Northwest in the last few years, is because this principle wasn't in place. In many churches, giftedness trumps character. The guy's gifted, he can speak. He can build a crowd, he can motivate people, so we'll let X, Y, or Z slide. Paul says in his address to Timothy, who's this younger pastor, who's appointing elders, overseers of the church, he says, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well. What's striking about what Paul says about the nature of the qualifications for an overseer in the local church is he lists tons of character qualifications, but only two abilities. The two abilities are he's got to be able to teach and he's got to be able to manage his household well. But everything else that Paul focuses on is character. Who is the man? Does the man have a strong moral sense, as Peggy Noonan would say? You know, as many of you know, we just were revising our church bylaws over the last several months, and the bylaws reflect this notion. They reflect the notion that men that are leading the church must be men of character, and the church must ultimately have a way, if such men no longer meet the qualifications to be removed from the office, because character must trump giftedness. But brothers and sisters, this idea isn't just for leaders. It's for every Christian. It's for every single Christian. We're in a series right now called Life in the Spirit. This is the third installment of that series, and I can't recapitulate everything that's been said in the first two, but I encourage you to listen to the first two sermons if you haven't heard them, but this is a series where we're looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the life of this local church. And we've said before that the Holy Spirit is the prominent and pervading promise of the Old Testament. The promise that was spoken by the prophets about the nature of the new covenant, the pervading and prominent aspect of that promise is that the Holy Spirit would indwell every single believer. That it wasn't just going to be some people for a period of time to be filled, but that every single person who has been born again by Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit would have the Holy Spirit living in them and indwelling them constantly, This is the promise of the new covenant. Jesus told the early church, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses further down. It says when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see the unfolding of the book of Acts is that every person that's converted, every person that repents and believes and is baptized, receives the Holy Spirit. So that's the mark of us as a local church. If Paul came to this church this morning, I would suppose one of his first questions to determine whether or not we were a Christian church is he would say, Have you received the Holy Spirit? Come on. Because of this, because each Christian has received the Holy Spirit, the New Testament and the book of 1 Corinthians in particular will teach us that each of us now have manifestations of that Spirit. That the Holy Spirit will manifest itself in our lives in an external, outgoing kind of way. Which is why the apostle can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. To be earnest about it, to be zealous for it, to deeply desire it, to pursue it steadfastly without pause, to be zealous for the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your lives. Now... There is something greater than spiritual gifts. In fact, there is something that is absolutely indispensable to the Christian in the operation of the spiritual gifts. There is something so significant that Paul says that you could have all the spiritual gifts a massive ability to help people. You could be a powerful orator, a fantastic communicator. You could have deep insights into people's lives. You could even be a worker of miracles. You could possibly raise people from the dead. But if you lack one thing, you are nothing. If you lack one thing, you are nothing. We are intentionally... I am intentionally, the elders are intentionally, the pastors are intentionally laying a foundation in the beginning parts of this series in Life on the Spirit before we actually preach on the gifts. So I'm intentionally doing those first two sermons. Now we're intentionally going to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and preaching sermons through there before we ever even actually talk about a gift. And the reason for that is because if we miss this, we miss everything. If we miss this, we miss everything. For the last two weeks, we've said these two things. This is what it means to pursue and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. It means first to pursue God and his glory. It means to pursue God, to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, to earnestly be zealous about pursuing them, it means to be earnest about your pursuit of God himself. Not some... Not some um, uh, secondary thing Not just some manifestation Not just the ability to, to speak in a tongue or something But the first pursuit Of desiring the spiritual gifts Is an earnest pursuit of God himself This is where people get wonky People get wonky Not be, because they don't want to first pursue And desire God They want, they want the, the spectacular thing to happen And that's where, that's where we get off base That's where we get off track But to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts Is to earnestly desire God Second thing to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts is to earnestly desire unity in the local church. To earnestly desire to see the gifts of the Spirit manifest among us is for us to earnestly desire to see our brothers and sisters edified, built up, encouraged, more in love with Jesus Christ. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to look for the spectacular or to puff yourself up or to really see something happen that people go, oh, wow, that's really awesome and cool that you have the ability to do that. The first two desires are an earnest pursuit and desire for God and his glory. And the second is to see your brother and sister built up, encouraged. And that's pretty amazing if you think about it. It's pretty amazing if you think about it, because earnestly desiring God (laughs) means inherently that God will manifest himself to you. Jonathan Edwards, God glorifies himself and his creatures in two ways, by appearing to their understanding and in communicating himself to their hearts. The manifestations which he makes of himself. When we pursue And desire God himself. He himself imparts himself into our hearts. The New Testament in the book of 1 Corinthians and in the book of Galatians. The way Paul talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit is very experiential language. He'll talk about it being poured out. He'll say that we actually drink of it. It's an experiential kind of language that's happening. That God, not just an idea, not just an impartation, but God Himself, and I don't understand what this means necessarily, but in a mysterious kind of way, actually imparts Himself into your heart. He dwells with inside you. The omnipresent God that upholds the universe by the word of His power actually dwells and resides within your being. That's amazing. The second thing that's amazing about the spiritual gifts is that God actually would use you to encourage another human being. That there's somebody in this room right now that's discouraged. I was thinking about this while we were worshiping, that we're singing about the great love of God and how easy it is, how easy it is for me to doubt that, to, to, to be cold to that. I was talking to Chris about this just the other day. That It's, it's amazing that the psalmist says to himself, oh my soul, why are you so downcast? But God would use another human being in this room to encourage someone who's downcast. Just think about that for a moment. As we end this service in a little bit here, and we go into a time of prayer and fellowship, if God gives you an impression in your heart or in your mind for another Christian in this room, go to them. Encourage them. Remind them that Jesus Christ is the King. Remind them that all their hope, their identity is found in Him. Say to them like David said to his soul, why are you downcast, O my soul? Look to God. God might actually use you this morning to encourage and lift up another Christian. That's that's not in my notes. (laughs) If we miss one thing, we miss Everything. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, Charity and its Fruits, this book is probably costs about $12, and it's probably worth about a million, okay? If you don't have this book, buy this book. Okay, this is probably, well, it's one of my favorite books. He says this, love. Love is the sum of all Christian virtue. Love is the sum of all Christian virtue. So let's read the text together. And look at this thing called love that Paul says is the more excellent way. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, along with your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, that you've sent the Holy Spirit to us to live and dwell with us, and among us, and to guide us and lead us into all truth. So we ask this morning for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be here, to lead us and guide us into all truth, to impart the reality of the gospel to our hearts yet again. We are so desperate for you, Lord. Help me, in Jesus' name, amen. So let me lay as the first point, the first point we can just call Corinth, point one Corinth. That's the name of the city that, this, that these Christians are in that Paul has written the letter to. We just lay the context of this passage so we understand what's going on here. So Corinth, as a city, is in a unique geographic location. It's uh, in a sense in the, in the middle of the, of the Roman Empire, okay, and it's an isthmus which means it's a, it's a skinny piece of land between two bodies of water, all right? And this isthmus is about four miles wide. And the history of Corinth is that around the 2nd century BC, it's destroyed by the Romans, and it's a wasteland, commentators note. No one's there for about 100 years until Julius Caesar recognizes this as a very significant piece of land for trade routes and so on. Because if you have to sail around this peninsula, it's about 168 miles. But if you create and set up this trade city, and you, create up a, you can create a way for goods to be taken ashore four miles across, put on another boat, and you save yourself a ton of time and money and so on. So the genius of Julius Caesar is to create this place called Corinth, and it blows up like gangbusters. But because of this, because of the fact that it was a wasteland for so long, there aren't necessarily very many native peoples there. There's not necessarily a native population in Corinth. It's a very multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic place to be. It's a very diverse city. And people came to Corinth for really one reason. People came to Corinth to make money. People came to Corinth to make money. They came to Corinth to make a name for themselves. And one commentator, Gordon Fee, he describes Corinth like this. He says it's a very densely populated area because it's only four miles across. So it's a very densely populated area. And he says it's one of the most dog-eat-dog and sex-obsessed cities in the ancient world. It's a dog-eat-dog kind of world, and it's a sex-obsessed city. In fact, the word <laughs> Corinth becomes a verb in the ancient world. The verb becomes to Corinthianize, and to be to Corinthianize means to make something morally defunct. Okay it just becomes, it becomes a moniker for everything that is dog-eat-dog dog and everything that is just kind of live-for-yourself, everything that is sort of sex-obsessed. In fact, on, outside of Corinth is where the Temple of Aphrodite was. And every night, a thousand temple prostitutes would come down into the city to flaunt their wares. In fact, even in... Paul's thinking, if you go back to Acts chapter 11, when Paul goes to Corinth to begin to preach the gospel there, Paul's in a very discouraged season in his life, he gets a vision from God, because essentially he's going to plant a church in one of the roughest cities of the world. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Acts 18, 8, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. It's amazing. Paul is in this area where it's a dog-eat-dog world, people are living for themselves. He's discouraged because in the previous towns he's been in, he's been beat up, he's been flogged, he's been kicked out. And God comes to Paul and says, don't be afraid. Keep preaching, keep teaching. There's many people in this city who are mine. What an encouragement, though, to us today, right? We live in a city that is a dog-eat-dog, live-for-yourself kind of city. In a sense, I can hear God communicating to us, don't be afraid, keep speaking, keep teaching, keep preaching, keep reaching out to your neighbors, build those relationships, because there are many in this city who belong to Jesus and don't know it yet. He'll go on to say, earlier in 1 Corinthians, he'll describe them. He'll say, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived Neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you have been washed, you have been sanctified, and you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God." These were the people, he says, but such were some of you. The gospel came into this town, into this city, and people who were running far from him, and by the gospel of God, God saved them. There is no one that is too bad. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, there is no sin that can keep you from the grace of God. There is no sin too deep there is no transgression that is too, too bad that can keep you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. And what God is saying to you this morning is to repent, to turn from your sin and to turn to Him in faith and trust and to receive the gift of salvation and grace that He has for you so that you can be listed in the such were some of you, such were some of you, no longer, but you have been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So here's the point. In a town like Corinth, in a city like Corinth, you have very talented people, you have very gifted people, You have people that would come to a major metro city to to, to make money and to use their talents and to use their gifts. And at the same time, you have people that are very, very troubled. You have people that have serious issues in their lives. You have people, it says that they have faith to move mountains. I don't mean to, you know, read too much into this, but these people have faith to move mountains. I take that to mean something like these are visionary leaders, These people can see what the future might be. They can start businesses. They can help people. They can start ministries. They have faith to move mountains. Nothing can hold these kinds of people back. They have tongues of men and tongues of angels. They could speak. They had oration gifts. They can gather a crowd. They can motivate people. They're talented and gifted people. But they're very troubled people. They're people that have a problem with Various kinds of sins that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And you know what, though? A church that grows, and a church that sees revival, and a church that sees the Spirit of God moving among them and seeing people get converted, have these kinds of problems. A healthy church has people in it who are unhealthy. A healthy church has people in it who are unhealthy. A healthy church has people in it who need the grace of Jesus Christ. And if our prayers are answered, we will have more of these problems in our church. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. More baptisms means more disciplines. (laughs) More baptisms mean that we have to be able to confront people in their sin. These are the kinds of problems that come from a revival. When the most brilliant people, people that are talented, gifted, people that are coming to the city to make a name for themselves, people that are moving from that that place that's south of the border called California and are coming up here because housing's cheap. (laughs) I don't know what I was going with that. Churches that grow have these kinds of problems. And that's point one. Point one, that the, the people in Corinth were some of the most brilliant people. They were highly gifted people. And yet they lacked one thing. So point two, the problem. Earlier in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul will describe his ministry chapter 2 he says and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men but in the power of God and then later he'll say in chapter 4 that he's going to come to them and he wants to see something but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people but their power I don't want to see the talk of these arrogant people. I want to see their power. In context, what's he talking about? What is the power in the first chapters of 1 Corinthians talking about? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, For the word of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who is being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In the context, the power of God, the power that Paul longs to see in these people is the power of weakness and humility. The power of a weak and foolish cross is what saves us. The wisdom of God is for him to be made weak and to suffer in our place and die. And there in that place, the power of God is made manifest to us. The power of God is shown in the weakness of the cross. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians... But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The power that Paul is talking about is a humility, it's a weakness, it's an utter dependency on God and his wisdom and his power that flows to us from the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is upside down. It's counterintuitive to our thinking. Nobody else says, when you're weak, then you're strong. But the wisdom of God is on display that when God is at his weakest, when he allows himself to be crucified and die at the hands of wicked men, then the true power of God flows to us. The redeeming, saving power of God comes from a weak Savior on a weak cross. So the same, Paul is saying, must be true among us. That when he's telling the Corinthians, when I come to you, I don't want to see those those arrogant words of wisdom, I want to see their power. I want to see their humility. I want to see their weakness. I want to see how they're living among each other, not just knowledge, not just things that puff up, but I want to see their weakness because it's in your weakness that there's actual power. It's in the giving of your life, it's in the laying down of your own preferences that you actually serve another human being. Where the power actually flows to somebody else. Husbands, we serve our wives by serving them and loving them like Christ loves the church. And the way that he serves us, Jesus serves us, is by laying himself down. He lays himself down. That's how he serves. That's how he leads. That's how he provides. That's how he protects. Not by exerting his own rights but by laying them down that's how we serve our children right we lay down our preferences we lay down our rights we serve them we love them we read that good night moon to them yet again the moon go to sleep moon come on <laughs> so here's the problem we just say it explicitly the problem Is that you can be gifted and not converted. You can be gifted and not converted. The mark of a supernaturally changed heart isn't giftedness, the mark of a supernaturally changed heart. Isn't giftedness the mark of a supernaturally changed heart is religious affections for God and for his people? The mark of a supernaturally changed heart is love for God and love for his people. That's what it is. He doesn't say, I'm gonna push hard, he doesn't say that you can have all mysteries and all knowledge and be spiritually immature. He says you can do all those things and be nothing. Nothing. He isn't down on the gifts, right? He's in context about telling them to earnestly desire them. He's telling them, I speak in tongues, I would that you all would speak in tongues. I would that you would prophesy. I would that you would do all these things. He's not down on the gifts. He's just reminding them that the mark of a supernaturally changed heart isn't giftedness. There's lots of biblical evidence for this. Remember that place In Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Have you ever noticed that before? These people, in Matthew chapter 7, are gifted. They're casting out demons. These people are prophesying. These people are doing many mighty works in his name. You can be supernaturally gifted and not converted. Which means that the mark in this assembly, as we continue to pursue these things, the mark in this assembly is not the guy who's the most gifted is therefore the most godly. It's not the guy who can speak in tongues and interpret tongues and can even cast out demons and heal people. That's necessarily the guy that even knows who Jesus Christ is. Luke 10. Jesus sends them out, right? He sends out his, the disciples. And they come back and he says, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Or even the demons are subject to us in your name. I think it's safe to assume that the disciples are sent out in Luke 10 includes Judas. Judas is being sent out. Judas is performing works in Jesus' name. He's casting out demons. The demons are listening to him. And later we'll hear of Judas, it would be better that this one was never even born. It would be better if he had never even been born. This is someone that did not know God. This is someone that was not converted. Spiritual gifts are not indications of spiritual fruit. Speaking abilities can come to someone who doesn't have a supernaturally changed heart. And maybe we ask the question, why? (laughs) Why would God do this? I don't think it's a... I don't think it's too hard of an answer, at least one of the reasons when we think about it. It's just if, if, if there weren't people that didn't have the common grace to speak into situations that could communicate, that had insights into our lives, that could help organize things in the world, would be a worse place off. I think it's just simply God communicating common grace to the world. But there is something. There is something that communicates and is evidence of a supernaturally changed heart and that is this i'll say it as a principle love is infinitely more amazing than miracles love is infinitely more amazing Than miracles. I said a moment ago that Jonathan Edwards says that true virtue rests in religious affections. True Christian virtue, the sign of a supernaturally changed heart, is love for God and love for one another. Look, do you realize what happens in the gospel? Paul will tell us in Romans that we were enemies of God, we hated God. Before he saved us and converted us and gave us a new heart and new affections. The fact that anybody in this room actually loves God is a far more impressive and amazing miracle than if someone was raised for the dead just now. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were dead. You were spiritually dead. You hated God. You wanted nothing to do with him. You were his enemy. But then by his sovereign mercy and miraculous grace, he converted you. He He took out your dead heart and he gave you a new one which now loves him and adores him. That is a miracle of miracles. The fact that anyone loves God in this room is greater than any miracle you'll see under the sun. Your conversion is the greatest miracle you'll ever see. The the fact that you love him and have affections for him means that he's done a work in your life. He's done something to you. He's come from the outside into you, converted you, changed your heart, and now given you affections for him. And that is a far more amazing and awe-inspiring miracle than someone even rising from the dead. And then in turn... You now actually can love your fellow brother or sister Christian. That is a miracle. That you actually can desire their good. Look, giftedness is not the sign of a supernaturally changed heart, but spiritual fruit is the sign of a supernaturally changed heart. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control that is the mark of a supernaturally changed heart you know we have we have a a saying or i've heard, i've heard people say that uh, that you can't take anything with you when you die you can't take anything with you when you die there's one thing one thing i'm still in People thunder from later sermons, but that's okay. There's one thing you can do now that you'll do forever in eternity with Jesus. You won't need faith, right? Because you'll see him face to face. You won't need to prophesy because he who is the word of God will be right in front of you. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will cease. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But love never ends. Love is the one virtue, the one thing that you do now that will extend on into eternity. Love for God and love for one another is something that you can do now and you will do for all eternity. It is the one transcendent action that crosses both of these realms, both of these places is love. And the reason is very significant for why love remains. It's because God himself is love. He is infinite and therefore his love is an infinite fountain of love. And because God is love, this is from Edwards, he dwells in heaven and Edwards calls heaven the chamber or the place of love. Heaven is the palace or the presence chamber of the High and Holy One whose name is love, and who is both the cause and source of all holy love. Heaven is the most wonderful of all places because of the fact that the God who is love is there. And because He is there, heaven is the place of love. God has temporarily dwelled in several places throughout history, as recorded in the Scriptures. He's temporarily dwelled in Jerusalem It says that he dwells in the temple. It says that he dwells above the Holy of Holies and above the Ark of the Covenant. But heaven is the place that God has built to be his abode forever. Heaven is the place where God will dwell forever. In Jonathan Edwards' unpublished essay on the Trinity, he helps us understand that the Spirit of God That the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is love dwelling in us. That the Spirit of God, which dwells in us, as we've been saying, is love dwelling in us. This is what the Apostle John is teaching in his first epistle. He says, If anyone does not love, he does not know God. If we do love one another, God abides in us. If we love one another, It's God abiding in us. The one who is love is dwelling actually in us. And he concludes like this. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So to summarize, if you love, you have the spirit. And if you have the Spirit, you love. So God's Spirit in us and God's love in us are the same thing. God's Spirit in us and God's love in us are the same thing. So again, love is the appearance of the eternal in time. The manifestations of the glories that are to come are not found in prophecies, they're not found in tongues. They're not found in words of knowledge. But the manifestation is us looking at the glories that are to come. What you will drink in for all eternity is seen in love. Love is the manifestation of heaven. Heaven on earth to experience the foretaste of the glory that is to come. The foretaste of the glory that is to come exists in love exists in us experiencing the love of God as he communicates it to us through his Holy Spirit poured into our hearts, which dwells inside of us. And it's experienced in us loving one another, loving our neighbor as ourselves, laying down our lives for one another. When we when we selflessly love someone, when we act not according to our... Um, our desires, our aspirations, our wills, but we serve somebody else, it is actually a foretaste of the glories that are to be revealed to us. (laughs) Not in tongues, words of knowledge and prophecy. Not to be down on those things. We'll get to those things. Those things are given to us by God. But there is something that is a more excellent way. I'm already into point three, which is the love of God. I want us to note something, though. It says to us, I just want to point out what's at stake. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, the verb tense in the Greek would suggest to us that we are becoming a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay. This is not a zero-sum game that Paul is suggesting to us here, that we're actually becoming something that we ought not be, that we are actually incrementally changing if we have not love. Put it another way, to continue to operate within the spiritual gifts without love for neighbor is making you into something. In other words, the spiritual gifts may not stop. The manifestations of the gifts might continue to come apart from the presence of love. There's no promise here. As we've said the whole time, there's no promise here necessarily that, this, that the cessation of the gift will, will come in your life just because there's not love. You can continually and you can continue to operate within the spiritual giftedness without the spiritual fruit. And it's making you into a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. So what's the solution? We'll need to say this too. Uh, Vaclav Havel said, and others have said, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? It's the notion of becoming something, that the spiritual gifts could make you harder and harder and harder, actually becoming a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. So what's the solution for us? Of course the solution for us is to see the love of God in the gospel. The love of God towards us in the gospel. Let me just read an excerpt from Edwards. He says it so well, I can't say it better than him. He says that love reveals to us, the Holy Spirit reveals to us the wonderful love of both the Father and the Son to the saints now. That Christ not only loved them in the world, but he loved them to the very end. And all this love is spoken of and bestowed on us why we are wanderers, outcasts, worthless, guilty, and his enemies. This love, such as seen nowhere else, nor has ever been known, or no one even ever conceived of as this, that greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And scarcely a righteous, for a righteous man one will die, but God showed his love towards us And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us when we were his enemies. This is the greatest act of love. The greatest act of love has already been shown to you. That God, when you were his enemy, when you were running far from him, would die for you and grant to you eternal life. Greater love has no one even ever conceived of or thought of. That God would love the creatures that ran from him and hated him. And that love has been poured out now into your heart. So when we're cold, when I'm cold, it's circling back to the beginning of the sermon, reminding myself, why are you downcast, O my soul? See the love of God that's yours in the face of Jesus Christ. When I feel cold towards my neighbor, when I feel cold towards my spouse and my children, and I, have, I don't have those feelings of love, remember, remember, remember the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. Edwards, the work of redemption, which is the gospel, makes known above all things and motivates us to love. The work of redemption, the saving act of the gospel, communicates to us the most infinite act of love that can ever be conceived of, the love of God towards his people. And as that communicates itself to our hearts, he says it motivates us. As we dwell on the love of God towards us in Jesus Christ, it motivates us to then go love. The world will know you're my disciples by your spiritual giftedness. No. The world will know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. The love that the world sees is the love that Jesus Christ has first loved us with. Look, just getting very practical, okay? And I'll close. Even if we never, and you are never, a super gifted kind of person, the love that you have and the love that you communicate to another human being and to another Christian is far greater than any other kind of spiritual giftedness. Don't despise the fact that maybe somebody does have a greater spiritual gift than you do because... When the playing field is level, you can love another human being, and your love is something that will transcend even your life. You loving and caring for another human being and serving another human being is something that you can do now and is the only thing that you can take with you, because we will relish and bask and taste and drink in the love of God in that abode and heavenly chamber of love for all eternity because of the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your love towards us in Jesus Christ. Help make us a community of people who love one another. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We now come to our time in the service where we celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is a meal that is for Christians. And uh, if you're a Christian, which means that you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins and you're looking to Him for all your hope of salvation, and you've made that faith public through the waters of baptism, then you're welcome to partake with us. If that's not you, we'd encourage you to not take of the elements. But instead, consider, if you're not a Christian, of repenting of your sins and turning to Jesus Christ, to experience the kind of love that we've been talking about this morning. The love of God that comes by repenting, acknowledging your spiritual bankruptcy, and turning to Him and saying, Lord, I need you. I repent of my sins. I need this gift of salvation that you offer me by faith. We can come up row by row, starting in the back, take the elements back to your seat, and one of the elders will come to lead us to partake corporately.